Maybe you've heard some of these sayings before. The more you try to impress people, the less impressed they'll be. The more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Now, what kind of statements are those? They're paradoxes. Right? Those are paradoxical statements. Now, you might be saying, well, what is a paradox? It's been a while since I was in school. A paradox is a statement that seems contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet perhaps is true. Now, all paradoxes are true. Some are nonsensical. But some paradoxes are true. Like, the more you learn, the more how little you know. Amen? I mean, that's a true statement. Well, Jesus and the Bible use paradoxes all over the place, such as it is more blessed to give than to receive. The first shall be last and the last first. You must lose your life to save it. When you are weak, then you are strong. And whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Those are paradoxical statements. At first they sound contradictory. They don't seem to make much sense, but the more you meditate upon them and the more you apply them to your life, the more true and powerful you realize they are. G.K. Chesterton gave a, a fantastic mental image of a paradox when they described it like this. A paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for attention. I like that. A truth standing on its head shouting for attention. Paradox can be a powerful vehicle of truth because it's unexpected. It makes you have to kind of think about it. And Jesus uses paradoxes. Proverbs, especially the book of Proverbs, is filled with paradoxes. And James follows the example of both when he gives us two paradoxes in today's passages. Now, you might remember uh, that James's readers are facing some, some tremendous pressures. They're struggling through... Uh, some really tough trials, uh, mainly coming from persecution, which has led to dislocation, which often, as you know, leads to, to poverty, to grief, to a number of different worries. Many of these Christians felt like they had no home. They'd been forced to move, and it didn't seem to matter where they landed, they were equally disliked by the pagan Romans and by their fellow Jews. Their world felt like it had been turned upside down and inside out. And maybe that's why James chose a couple of paradoxes here to encourage them and to exhort them this morning. Their lives were a paradox. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like at times or you felt like in the past that your life was a paradox. And I know our world certainly seems to be very paradoxical, doesn't it? And when our external trials and hardships... they they seem to hit harder when it seems like other people around us, life is just going easy peasy for them. Right? That we look around us, we see other people whose life is like a bed of roses. Everything good seems to fall in their lap. They're better off financially. They get the promotion or the scholarship. They've got perfect health and good looks. They're popular. They're successful. It can make our trials and hardships seem worse. And that's especially difficult when we see people like this and we know they're not even a Christian. Maybe we know they're dishonest, they're phony. 
Maybe we know that, that they have, have been living lives of immorality and greed and selfishness. And we ask, how is it fair that all these good things keep happening to bad people and bad things happen to good people? The author of Ecclesiastes understands. He says in chapter 8, verse 14, there is a futility to this done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is futile. I think we would agree. So how do we face these times of testing and trial when our lives just don't seem to be very fair? How are we to think about those ups and downs, those mountaintops and valleys of life that Ben illustrated for us? Well, that's what James talks about. We're continuing in this theme of trials and difficulties, and he concludes this part of his letter with this, verses 9 through 12. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field, for the sun rises and then together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So the first thing James does here, verses 9 through 11, is he contrasts our positions. He contrasts these two positions of life. He takes a paradoxical approach to talk about the rich and the poor. Now, we can apply this to any aspect of the highs and lows of life, not just financially. You know, there are those in good health and those who are struggling in their health. There are those who who can't seem to ever get a break from the bad things that happen in life, and then there are those that seem to only ever catch lucky breaks. There are those who are stuck in their jobs, and then there are those who just keep landing better and better jobs and higher and higher pay. But James wants us to remember that those differences aren't always what they seem. And the first thing James does in this contrasting these two positions, he wants to bring comfort to the lowly. He brings comfort to the lowly. Now, the Greek verb, uh, word that he uses here when he says the brother of humble circumstances, that Greek word is the same one Jesus used to describe himself as being gentle and humble of heart in Matthew chapter 12. This word means lowly, undignified, meek and mild. Now, it can also carry with it the idea of poverty and neediness, which is obviously what James is specifically talking about here because he's comparing this brother of humble circumstances with the rich. So the humble circumstances specifically James is addressing with these readers are people who are experiencing poverty. And so James defines that. He defines their physical problem as being poverty. That's the the reality of their life in this earth. Now, it makes sense that these believers would be struggling with financial hardships because they've been driven from their homes. They'd lost their jobs. They'd lost their property. They had to travel to other cities where it wasn't always easy to find work or a place to live. And we know from both Scripture and history that there was a famine that hit this part of the world about the same time. And as we all know, financial poverty can lead to a deeper poverty 
of spirit. In his commentary on James, Kent Hughes explains it like this. He said, because they were economically low, they were low in the eyes of the world, and no doubt, in most instances, low in their own eyes. Their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. Now, James didn't want that. He didn't want their financial hardships to make them think less of themselves. He didn't want them mistakenly believing they were somehow second-rate Christians, that they were somehow inferior as believers compared to these other Christians who weren't struggling that way. And so James encouraged them by pointing out this paradox, that despite their physical problem of poverty, he wanted them to think about their spiritual position as being exalted in Christ. So the brother of humble circumstances, that's their physical problem, but their spiritual position is they are exalted in Christ. And James mentions this exaltation, or some translations say high position. What does he mean by that? What is this exaltation? Well, it's right there in the word he uses to address them. Brother. Brother. Sister. No matter how low they were in terms of worldly goods, they're exceedingly rich in spiritual terms because they belong to Christ. They were members of the family of God. They are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Now, Paul goes into this in Romans chapter 8. Um, we're going to begin in verse 14. It'll be up on the screen. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Paul is saying that in Christ. We're not orphans. We're not strangers. We've been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters, as co-heirs with Christ. And that means that we inherit all the riches of God's kingdom. What Paul often referred to as spiritual riches in Christ Jesus, they belong to us. So how can we ever let our current momentary financial circumstances rob us of the lasting eternal peace and joy that is ours as sinners who have been plucked up and rescued from the ruin of sin and seated in heavenly heights with Christ Jesus. How could we ever let a momentary problem rob us of that peace and joy? We need this word of comfort just as much as James's readers, don't we? A lot of people are struggling today with record high inflation, with rising gas prices and lower wages with increasing interest rates now, volatility in the stock market. Things are uncertain. And for many families, they're scary times right now. And all of us are just a little bit poorer today than we were a year ago. Others are struggling with health issues that this time last year they never would have dreamed that they'd be facing. 
Because of the pandemic, so many people's plans for building a house, changing a career, moving further in their education, those things were short-circuited or delayed. But you know what hasn't changed? You know what hasn't been short-circuited and will never be delayed? That if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. He still sits on His sovereign throne and He sees you and He cares about you. There are no supply chain issues when it comes to God's grace and mercy. Amen? They are still new and abundant every single morning. Jesus is our example of this. In Philippians 2, Paul describes how Jesus became lowly for us. God the Son emptied Himself. He stepped from heaven to earth. He was born to a humble Jewish family. He lived a humble life as a servant. He obediently died for, and according to the Father's will, a cruel, humiliating death on the cross. Yet Paul says in verse 9, For this reason God highly exalted Him. Because Jesus lowered Himself, God the Father highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name. This is part of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus meant in the Beatitudes when He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then He said, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. If you're humble and poor in spirit, blessed are you, because the earth and the kingdom of heaven are yours. And we can learn a lot about what this looks like today when we look to our brothers and sisters who are suffering far worse than we ever could, who who are around the world right now just hanging by a thread, not to belittle anybody's uh, difficulties or concerns today, but the poorest among us in this room are wealthy compared with the majority of the world. And if you've ever been to places like Mozambique or Indonesia or, or Honduras or Brazil or Guatemala, you know that. And I know people that have either been to those places on mission trips. I've been to a couple of those on mission trips. And one of the amazing things that you find is that those people that are living by our standards in abject poverty are joyous. And they're grateful. And they are generous. They are giving to us. And it's like, we're here to give to you. How can they do that? That joy, that generosity, that gratitude, it comes from a right perspective about their position. They're not blind to their needs. They're fully aware of their needs. But they also see that they have riches in Christ Jesus that transcends all of that. And so they're able to have the proper response. And that's what James tells his readers. The proper response, if you are physically impoverished but you're exalted in Christ, the right response is boasting. Boast about it. No matter how detested we are in this world, no matter how low and despicable we may appear to other people, in reality we enjoy the highest of all privileges because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Is that not something worth boasting about? Is that not something worth considering as great joy? The Greek word here for boasting is kachamai. And it literally means to be loud-tongued. You know, it got me in trouble in school growing up. I've always been loud-tongued. But what the word means in the Greek is to boast, to brag, to glory, and to show off, 
to revel in. The most lowly and poor, the most downtrodden and forgotten, if you're highly exalted in Christ, if you're really seated in the highest heavens along with Christ Jesus, if you are sons and daughters of the King at creation, revel in that, boast about that, fly that flag, toot that horn, make a big deal about that. Now, when we think about boasting and bragging, especially if we've been raised in the South to be polite, you know, those are bad things, right? You shouldn't be prideful. Boasting and bragging are prideful. You're not supposed to toot your own horn, right? Well, if, if you're boasting and bragging because you think you're all that in a bag of chips, if you think, hey, I hung the moon, I'm the greatest there ever was, and you're, you're shining that spotlight on yourself, look at me, well, then yes, you're right. It's prideful, it's sinful, it's wrong. If you're seeking praise and glory for yourself, that's sinful pride. But what James is talking about is pointing that spotlight on Jesus. It's about making people want to praise and glorify what Jesus has done in your life. Referencing several Proverbs that address this, Jesus said in Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's what James is talking about. These are believers who have been humbled. And he says, you're going to be exalted. You are exalted. Listen, the cross of Christ is the greatest leveler of mankind. It brings down the haughty, but it lifts up the humble. Yes, we should beware of having a haughty, prideful spirit that just boasts in ourself, that denies our humble estate, that, that, that denies that we need the grace and mercy of God. Yes, we reject that. But it's when we are honest and confess our neediness, when we seek God's provision, when we acknowledge our sinfulness and cry out for His mercy, that's when we're lifted up. That's when we can boast in our position in Christ Jesus, fully acknowledging it's nothing I deserve. I boast not because of my strength and my cleverness and and my hard work, but Jesus' strength, His wisdom and His work. That's what I boast in. So we can summarize James's point in verse 9 as he has brought comfort to the lowly in their poverty, as he has reminded them of their spiritual position as exalted in Christ and called on them to boast, to glory, to revel in that. We can summarize it this way. The key for lowly Christians to rejoice in the trial of poverty is to keep in mind their high position in Christ. So James has brought this comfort for the Lord. But next, in verses 10 and 11, he shifts his focus to the challenge of the rich. The challenge of the rich. Now, apparently not all James's readers were suffering persecution and hardships. Some were doing quite well. Their property had not been seized. They had not been refused the right to do business or make money. And, and either they hadn't been persecuted wherever they've landed or... Uh, the Christians there have just, or the people there have just given those Christians a little bit more tolerance than others had experienced. Now, some commentaries will take this to say that James isn't talking to Christians here. He's talking to the evil rich that are exploiting these poor brethren. These are non-believing rich people. Now, I do think that's true in chapter 5. When we read what James has to say about the rich in chapter 5, it's much harsher. And I do believe that he is specifically talking about the, the rich, the, uh, the, the cruel and unjust 
wealthy in society that aren't believers that are mistreating these Christians. But here, if you look at the syntax of the Greek, which I did for you so you don't have to do that, okay? When you look at that sentence structure, when James says brother, it can both apply to the humble circumstances and it can apply to the rich. So I think what James has done here is he's talked to the Christians, the the brethren of humble circumstances, to comfort them, but now he's turning his attention to the Christian who's experiencing prosperity and speaking to them as well. And he addresses not their physical problem of poverty, but their physical possessions of riches. He brings up their riches in contrast to the other's poverty. And just as the lowly Christians were tempted to think too little of themselves because of their poverty, the temptation for Christians who have wealth is to think too highly of themselves, right? To maybe even look down upon those believers that are suffering financially or what other, what other situation they might have. And we still have a tendency to do this today. We equate prosperity with God's blessings and adversity with God's disfavor on us, right? But James would have none of this. He wanted the rich Christians not to look down on and shun those who are worse off than them, but to embrace them as brothers and sisters, as equals around the cross of Christ. The rich Christian, like the poor, also has to look beyond themselves and their resources and their circumstances and focus on God's kingdom. The rich need to do that just as much as the poor need to do that. Because just as one believer's poverty or poor health or or failing business doesn't reflect their true identity in Christ, neither does another Christian's health, wealth, and success reflect their true identity in Christ, right? And so James writes to these Christians who have these wealthy possessions about their spiritual position. Their spiritual position as humbled in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are exalted. You are set high in the heavens with Christ Jesus. Your life is hidden with Christ in God in the heavenly realms, whether you're rich or poor. But James wrote to these lowly Christians to encourage them, to comfort them, to consider their high, exalted position in Christ But he's writing to these believers that are high in this world, that are doing great, to remind them of their humbled position in Christ. Their focus needed to be on something different, to remember that they are mortal, fallible human beings that have needs as well. In other words, James calls for rich Christians to stay humble by remembering that the riches of this life are fleeting, they're unpredictable. And often in times of trial and crisis, they fail us. Look back at verse 11 with me. James uses this word picture. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. You know, it's kind of like what we were experiencing back in May and June around here, right? That that hot wind and no rain. And you see, you know, one day I'm out in my garden and my tomato plants look great. My pepper plants look great. And I come out there the next day and they're drooped and wilted, you know, and tomatoes are falling off. and, And it just happens like that. And he says, in the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Life in this world passes very quickly. And in eternity... There won't be any rich Christians or poor Christians. We're all the same in heaven. 
I read about a story, uh, I read a story about a general once who was at a banquet at a, at, in a royal court and he was sitting next to the court chaplain. And so in order to make some small talk, he asked the chaplain, he said, Pastor, in this moment together, could you tell me a little something about heaven? And the chaplain looked at him carefully and said, Well, yes, I could. And the first thing that I could tell you, General, is that in heaven, you won't be a general. <laughs> Just as the cross of Christ is a great leveler, so is death, right? And so are trials. I think, in fact, one of the blessings for those who are humble and lowly in this life is that their hardships can lead them to trust in God in ways that wealthy, well-to-do, prosperous people struggle with. Which is what Jesus was getting at in Mark chapter 10 when He said, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now what Jesus is illustrating is how impossible it is for anyone to get into heaven if they do it trusting in their riches. Trusting in their wealth, in their goodness, in their hard work. It's impossible. Again, in his commentary on James, Kent Hughes explains that he says, Riches steal the unregenerate against the primary requirement for entering the kingdom of God. Helpless dependence. None of us can enter the kingdom of God apart from recognizing our helpless dependence. And he says it's difficult for the rich to present themselves as naked, humble beggars before God. I think that as Americans, and, and again, all of us in this room, by comparison to much of the world, we're all wealthy. All of us are here today. And I think that we are actually disadvantaged and underprivileged when it comes to spiritual things because of it. Things like humbly depending on God, acknowledging our weakness and our insufficiency, denying ourselves, delaying gratification, experiencing and expressing true gratitude. Being a servant can be hard for us. Now, all that being said, we have to be careful not to misunderstand what the Bible teaches about money and about wealth. The Bible doesn't teach that having wealth is a sin. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Abraham was essentially a wealthy rancher. Job was a very wealthy man who had his hands in a number of different industries. David and Solomon were wealthy kings. Some of Jesus' followers came from wealth or were themselves financially successful. But what the Bible is against are Christians allowing their riches to make them prideful elitist, presumptuous. But the Bible also warns Christians who are not rich to not be envious of those who are. Listen, it's possible for a Christian in poverty to be just as much a snob as a Christian in prosperity. It's just as likely for a poor Christian to be materialistic and greedy and obsessed with wealth as it is for a wealthy person, right? Right? Those are problems of the heart irregardless of your bank account. Which is why James prescribes for the rich person the same thing he did the poor person. Boast. Boast. Listen, when we're blessed with wealth, with opportunities and good health, when we have well-paying jobs or a happy home, we have to recognize, first of all, that those blessings come from God, not from us. But secondly, they come with their own set of challenges. 
with their own set of temptations. This is what Paul encourages Timothy about and Timothy's congregation in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. Beginning in verse 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, he says, we should be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is warning, he's saying, look, there's nothing wrong with being blessed, there's nothing wrong with working hard, there's nothing wrong with being prosperous, but beware, if that's what you crave, if that's what you're pursuing in life, it comes with its own set of traps and temptations. And a lot of people have been ruined by it. So what's Paul's prescription? Well, we heard it in our, in our New Testament reading this morning, beginning of verse 17. He says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up for themselves treasure, he means in heaven, as a good foundation for the coming age so that we may take hold of what is truly life. Listen, no matter how much we have, if we are relying on our possessions for meaning and purpose, if that's where our identity is rooted, if we're looking to our stuff to give us peace and joy, we're going to come up empty. It's not going to satisfy. And again, being greedy and ungrateful happens to people no matter how much money they have, no matter how much stuff they have. Like the poor, the rich should revel in their spiritual poverty and privileges, reminding that apart from God, we have nothing. We don't even have life. We don't have heaven. We don't have forgiveness. Apart from Christ, we are all spiritually impoverished. And any blessings that we have are spiritual privileges that come from Him. That's true for us all. None of us are worthy of God's grace and mercy. None of us get into heaven on our own. And so as the poor believer boasts in his exalted state in Christ it does well for those who have much to boast in their humility. Remembering, as Paul says, that we are all only saved by grace through faith and it's not of ourselves. It's God's gift. It's not from works so that none of us have room to boast. Now, in verse 12, James bookends this whole section talking about trials, external trials and hardships that come our way. Remember, he began in verse 2 by commanding us to consider it great joy when we suffer various trials. And so here, here at the end of this passage, he's specifically focusing on the trials of wealth and poverty. Those highs and lows of life, those good times and not good times that we all go through and experience in one way or another. And here he reminds us why we are to rejoice in these. It's because we're blessed when we endure them. 
And James, again, he's offering this to both positions. The highs and the lows, the ups and the downs of life. When we endure life's trials, we can have confidence in our prize. We can have confidence in our prize. And what is that prize? Well, look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, what is this crown of life? Well, James is, is doing something, uh, he, he's, he's drawing from something his readers can identify with. Sports. Some things haven't changed in 2,000 years, have they? We still love sports and love to make analogies uh, based on sports. And in fact, the author of Hebrews and Paul do this a lot. I put a few of those references in your notes. You can look at that some other time. But imagine the scene here. Runners are preparing for a race. They've stripped off everything that weighs them down and hinders them. Right? Their muscles are taut, their nerves are ready, they're at the starting line waiting for that signal, and when it's given, they're off. And they're putting every ounce of energy they strength into running that race, heading for that finish line. And whoever crosses that line first receives the victor's crown. Right? Think of those laurel wreaths that they will put on their head. Not a trophy, not a medal, but one of those crowns, one of those victor's wreaths on their head. Through this imagery, James is affirming that as Christians, we're all running the same race. We're all running the same race of life, and that, that race will end in glory. That's the finish line that we're running toward. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He said, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing that's different about the race we run as Christians. All Christians are equally winners when we cross that finish line. There's no first, second, third, fourth place. Right? It's not about who gets there the first or the fastest. In fact, when you think about what that finish line is, when you cross from this life into the next life and you step into heaven, none of us want to get there first or fastest, do we? We put a lot of effort to make sure somebody crosses that line before we do, right? In fact, the closer we get to that finish line, we kind of slow down a little bit, don't we? And we're like, you go on ahead. No, no, you go on ahead. I'm fine. I'm taking my time. But when we do cross that line, God Himself is there to give us that victor's crown, to crown us with eternal life. Listen, in heaven, there are no highs and lows. In heaven, there are no rich and poor. There are no healthy and sick. There are no famous and obscure, we are all simply believers in Jesus Christ, equally astonished and amazed that the God of glory was gracious enough to allow us into His presence. Amen? So the key for us in this moment is to keep our eyes trained on that finish line in glory because it is so easy for us to get distracted, to put our eyes on the wrong things, to look with disfavor on fellow Christians based on some worldly standard of success and prosperity. Remember that in verse 8, James talked about the double-minded man and stable on all his ways. Few things can make us unstable and double-minded, distracted away from the things of God than pursuing after pleasure and wealth and possessions, right? Those can make us double-minded. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
that if we keep our eyes fixed on eternity, these lesser matters in life will be lesser matters. Because in eternal glory, we experience the true and everlasting wealth and honor of God. We'll be as exalted as we possibly can be. And nothing and no one can bring us down. So let's keep eternity in mind to the point that every day we're praying, even so come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, let's prayerfully consider how God could use our resources for His kingdom. How could God use our resources to help spread the gospel? To help meet the needs of others around us? How can we come alongside those who maybe are struggling in ways that we aren't? They're struggling financially. They're struggling as parents. They're struggling in their marriage. They're struggling in their business. They're struggling in their health. How can we come alongside these people and help lift their heads and remind them of their exalted status in Christ Jesus? Especially if you've been there. As Ben said, you've been through that valley. How could God use you to help someone else? the main thing I want to ask you today is are you trusting in someone or something other than God? Are you trusting in your wealth? Are you trusting in your religious background? Are you trusting in the fact that you're a good person and you try to do the right thing to earn God's favor? I hate to tell you, it's never going to happen. You can't do enough good things. You can't have enough money. You can't be religious enough to earn God's favor because God's favor is freely given. He loves you as you are. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that He could make you something more, better, so that you could become more like Jesus. He loves you as you are, but He doesn't leave you that way. He wants to set you free. He wants to transform your life. But you first have to confess your spiritual poverty. You have to acknowledge your sin and turn from it and put your trust in the One who died on the cross and rose from the grave to save you from your sins. Have you done that today? Have you done that ever in your life? I invite you to do that before you leave this morning. To come and to say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I know I'm separated from you. I know that what I deserve is eternal separation from you. But I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to save me. And I ask you to be my Lord and Savior today. I would love to help you experience that exalted position in Christ Jesus. Maybe today God is leading you and your family to unite with this church and to, to bring your experience in life, to bring your highs and lows, to bring your resources to put to work for the kingdom of God, we invite you to come. But listen, for many of us in this room, we probably need to come before God and confess one of two things. Either we have relied too much on our stuff, on our jobs, on our bank accounts, and not enough on God, or we've allowed Satan to take the lows of life that we've suffered. And some of us, I know, have suffered some extremely low moments, and it's so easy to let Satan take those and use them to cause bitterness in our hearts, to drive wedges between us and other believers. Maybe God is convicting you about one of those things today. This altar is open for you to pray. I would love to pray with you. But let's respond as God's Spirit leads. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, Lord, it's so easy for us to get our priorities out of whack. It's so easy for us to adopt the world's standard of 
who's blessed and who's not and what's prosperity and what is success. And Lord, those things ultimately make us unhappy. And they can sow seeds of jealousy or bitterness or apathy within us. We can be deceived into believing that the, the pleasures of this life are what's most important. And, and when, when the things that we rely upon, when those fleeting wealth and success and health, when those things leave us, then we're adrift. Father, help us to remember our exalted position in Christ. Help us to remember that none of us have anything that's good that didn't come from Your hand. God, give us right perspective about the highs and the lows of life. And help us to run the race faithfully with our eyes fixed on the prize of that crown of eternal life. Lord, help us to come alongside those struggling in the race and to help them run, to help them through those valleys. And God, if there's anyone here that needs to come today to put their hope and their trust for the first time in Jesus Christ, I pray they would do it. It's in His name we pray. Amen.